Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Rachel Everard talks to Kirsty Murphy. Kirsty joined the Blades aerobatic team in 2016, following a 17-year career in the Royal Air Force. She was selected to be the first female pilot to fly with the world-famous Red Arrows, the RAF's aerobatic team. She also served as a flying instructor and flew operational sorties in Iraq. The pair discuss Kirsty's reasons for joining the military and the value of teamwork, diversity and collaboration. Kirsty opens up on the challenges she faced to reach the skies in her career and how ultimately persistence is one of life's most important skills. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we're here to talk about the future of travel. In particular, I'm really interested in your role as a former RAF pilot, your involvement with the Red Arrows in particular, which sounds super exciting. So I guess I'll start there. What really drew you into flying? So I was quite lucky. My dad was in the Air Force um, and I grew up around it. In fact, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, in the summer holidays, I used to go and spend the time when I was on holiday. And obviously, mum and dad were both working at work with dad. Um, And he got me really involved on the squadron. I used to help plan missions. I used to go into the control tower and talk to them on the radio, watch them fly off and come back. And then I'd help in the debrief as well. I was really taken by how involved the squadron allowed me to be and and how much they sort of made me part and made me feel part of that squadron. And so it was actually being part of that squadron and being around it that made me think, how do I do this myself? I don't want to just be, you know, my dad's daughter coming along. I want to do this for myself. At the time, they didn't allow females to be fast jet pilots. But to me, there was sort of that seed of the idea was now sown that I wanted to join the RAF, to be part of that family, that big camaraderie that you get within it. And um, then I thought I'd sort out the finer details of what I'd actually do a bit further down the line once it was a bit more obvious. So it must have been a very kind of affirmative period of your life going into that work experience. How important do you think having that actual on the ground experience was for you in terms of kind of setting out your, your future career path? It's um, it was really important actually, and the main thing is is yeah, I get asked it now. What does a pilot actually do? Everybody says to me that obviously when you're flying, you're flying the aircraft. But what do you do when you're not flying? And it, for me, that was the best bit. That made me realise actually what someone in the air force does, what a what actually happens on an RF squadron day to day. So I knew what it was really like, not just sort of this idea of what being a fast jet pilot might be like. And I'm a real believer of you can't you can't be what you can't see. And I saw it. I saw my dad being on the squadron and I saw his friends and I thought, well, they're not they're not gods. You know, they're not incredible people. They're they're lovely. But um, if they can do that, I can do that. So it never seemed like a really unusual option for me to take at all. But presumably what you were seeing was actually an all male squadron. Yes, ironically. Um, And I just, I don't know whether it was my age um, and that sort of sense of I can do whatever I want and the way my parents had brought me up. But although I knew I couldn't be a fast jet pilot at that stage, I thought I could be a pilot. I can be on a squadron and that's fine. And then it was literally probably within a year of me wanting to join the Air Force that the RAF opened the doors to females being fast jet pilots. Literally, I remember reading the news and thinking, great, that's what I'll go and do then. That's, That's now my ambition. And did you play a role in making that happen? 
No, not at all. No. So this is back in 1991. Um, so I was still only 13 at the time. And for me, it was just a really good news story. And, and actually, I watched with real interest the first few females going through. And I was lucky enough to meet one of them, Joe Salter. And she came and spoke to me personally. So, you know, really suddenly had a role model as well to actually look up towards. And um, yeah, it was really helpful to encourage me to achieve my ambition. And how important do you think having role models, particularly female role models in such a male dominated sector are? Hugely important, actually. Um, And we talk about role models for younger women and trying to get them into the aviation industry, whether that's in the military or civil. But actually, even as an older female, I still look to role models now, you know, how are you managing to be a pilot and have a family and all the other complications of life now? I'm a sort of an older woman. And and so it's hugely important. I've sort of already referred to you can't be what you can't see. And I really believe that you've got to it's only when you meet people doing the job that you think you might want to do that it makes it seem so much more achievable and doable. Um, And in fact, I work with an organization, I do some outreach work, and they do research as well as the actual outreach to make sure what they're doing is is credible and and important and and has an impact. And they say that for a young person, that's the age of 16, that person needs four credible interactions with an employer. And it's actually outside of the aviation industry. It's not just aviation, but four moments, if you like, or sessions with an employer. And they're 75% less likely to end up not employed in training or education. You know, that makes a difference to people. So actually, when you do go and speak to someone, even if you spend five minutes talking to someone about aviation, you don't know actually how much of an impact that has on an individual. And it's really important. I think that is really important and particularly reaching people at such a young age. What programs are you involved in in terms of reaching out to to younger people about careers in aviation or about the experiences you've had? Yeah, so um, as part of um, Department for Transport in the UK, I'm an aviation ambassador and it's been a really helpful program because it put me in contact with lots of organisations. So there's lots of organisations out there doing outreach work, but the one thing they really struggle for is people who are willing to just spend some time and talking to young people about their jobs. So obviously my passion is aviation, so I generally err towards that. That's what I talk about. But a lot of the organizations are not necessarily aviation specific. Um, so there's a organization called Employers in Education, and that just links employers with education in the state schools to allow those children to have that contact with people, regardless of what industry that might be. Um, and it really makes a difference. And that's what I find so fascinating is having those conversations can change someone's life and it can point them in a direction that they weren't already headed in. And it changes their perception of how important their education is as well, which is vital. Because you can have whatever dream you want, but unless you understand how you're going to get there, you know, you won't make it. Um, And it makes young people recognize or realize that the education they're getting at school, it it does lead to something. And it is important. It's not you can't just not do that bit and then just jump to the next bit and and have a great career. It's it's really important. So for me, being able to talk to young people and, and help them understand what their various subjects at school will allow them to do. You know, as a pilot, I don't have to be a specialist in any particular subject. But I can tell them what kind of subjects I do on a day to day basis, you know, whether that's um, biology in terms of pulling G, whether it's geography, obviously, is is the sort of classic, you know, lots of maths. And they can hopefully then relate to the fact that actually the stuff they're studying day to day at school, there's a reason for it and you will use it when you're older. I think that's so important, actually, to apply it in real life applications and, and see where your trigonometry lesson can be more meaningful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit about flying in the the Red Arrows team in particular. I've seen some of the displays. They're fantastic. They're terrifying for me. Um, (laughs) What was that like to be a part of that iconic um, display team? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's um, it's a real honour to wear that red flying suit. And when you first get in the team or you first selected and you're successful, you know, it's obviously an incredible feeling to have been successful in your application. Um, but quite quickly, when you start doing the training and then you start meeting some of the ex-team members who might come and visit the squadron or at a social event, and you realise you're just a very small cog in, in a much bigger wheel. You're you know, it's the red suit that's the big thing. It's not the individual pilots. And it's really humbling, actually, to just be part of or be allowed to be part of that for sort of two to three years. It's an incredible experience. The, the things you get to do, the places you get to fly, and more importantly, the people you get to meet. You know, you're out there meeting the general public every weekend in the summer. And I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Was there any particular experience or moment that stood out as a highlight for you? That's such a hard question to answer because there's so many different experiences for different reasons. Um, I always laugh when I ever do presentations about the Red Arrows and say what people maybe don't realize is when you're flying that close to other aircraft, you are purely watching them. So actually, most of the aircraft are flying off the leader at all times, even if you're one or two aircraft out, you're still staring towards the leader and using him. So actually, you know, you don't look around, basically, you're just staring at the leader for the entire show. So you can be displaying in some incredible places, but frankly, you're you're completely unaware of it because you're so busy looking at the leader. And I do remember running in, I think it was in my first year, and we'd only just got our um, public display authority, which means we were now allowed to fly in front of the public. And we were coming back to the UK, having got that out in them um, in Cyprus. And uh, we were flying, uh, doing a display at Athens. It was incredible. So we we're flying over the city of Athens towards the display point. And of course, I'm just staring at the leader thinking, oh, Athens is below me, but I can't see it. And uh, the boss said, okay, everyone, because we're in big formation at this point, so we're not super tight. And he said, uh, okay, everyone, you can have a quick look around you and then back to me. And I just glanced out and I saw the Acropolis beneath me, you know, really close, obviously, because we're fairly low at that point, a thousand feet or something. And just fly over the Acropolis and then sort of obviously stare back at the leader again and then start um, concentrating on the show was was really brilliant. But like I say, most of the time you're displaying in incredible places and, and fairly oblivious. You mentioned the kind of community spirit of the the team and in particular kind of how people perhaps that were former pilots have come back in to engage with the team. Is that something that you're now doing? And, and do you think you've become an internal role model for other females coming through the display team? Yeah, being part of the Red Arrows family is um, part of, you know, part of the job and one of the joys of the job. So every year there's a reunion um, and a big dinner and everyone gets to go back. You can always pop into the squadron whenever you see people around. It's amazing how many times you bump into an ex-Red Arrows pilot. You know, you've got a, there's something in common. You've both been through that experience. It, I mean, it probably takes over your life for a couple of years. But if I bring it all the way back to why I joined the Air Force, you know, as a 13 year old, it was that sense of the camaraderie and being part of a family and um, that made me want to join the Air Force. And the Red Arrows is just, you know, that on steroids. The team functions so well um, and the excellence behind it is, is down to that sense of being part of a family and a bigger thing. So it's been great being part of it. I've enjoyed it. Um, in terms of being a role model to other female pilots within the Air Force, I always have tried to do that naturally. You, you know, you look out for any of the young women that are coming behind you, as did many of the women who were ahead of me. Um, and I think it is important to encourage them because, you know, we all have our own ups and downs in flying training and, you know, any pilot would know that. Um, and I think it's important to have another female to be able to talk to if you want to. Actually, my best friend for most of my Air Force career was a male rather than a female. But I think it is nice to be able to have that contact. So, yeah, it's really important, I think, to have those role models within within the military as well. 
I imagine doing a display or the training even for a display is both quite physically, but also mentally draining exercise. How do you prepare for that? I'll just say it is exhausting is actually, I wouldn't say draining, I'd say exhausting. When you first start training with the Red Arrows, you know, I've flown in the tornado, for example, most missions I flew were one hour 45. Before that, there'd be a couple of hours of planning. Afterwards, there'd be a couple of hours of debriefing. So one trip, you know, it takes a good six, seven hours um, and you do a couple of those a week. And that was tiring. And then I joined the Red Arrows and the flights are, what, 25 minutes? And I thought, well, this isn't going to be anywhere near as demanding in that respect, is it, as flying a tornado? And you fly three times a day, five days a week. And within a few weeks, I was coming home from work and just lying on the couch, (laughs) eating my dinner and going to bed. I was absolutely exhausted because it's the focus for that very short period of time that is so tiring. And actually, the way you train for it and the way you prepare for it is by doing it. And so you start off feeling really exhausted after a few weeks of doing it, but you gradually sort of toughen up to it. And also, I guess it takes fractionally less focus because you're doing something which you've done, you've started practicing lots and lots and lots, so you're getting more practice at it. So in that respect, some of it's done a bit more cognitively. It's like anything, the only way, real way to train for it is to actually do it. <laughs> and I've seen the displays myself and they are almost an art form in terms of the choreography and the different tricks and stunts that are pulled. How do you go about planning a new display or a new movement? So it's very much up to the leader who um, can have new uh, manoeuvres put into the show. Um, But equally, you don't want to write a show completely from scratch because obviously every year there are lessons are learned. And so the the show is developed over decades and there's a reason why certain things are flown in certain ways. There are reasons why actually you get to the point really where could you keep improving a show because actually someone has probably nailed it in terms of how much the audience can see you and how exciting each maneuver is, all that kind of stuff. But each leader likes to obviously put their own impression on the on the show, I think. So um, they normally work with with the team to make sure that if within the team, are there some particular shapes or some particular maneuvers that are really well loved by certain members of those team of the team. So those sort of go into a list. And then when it comes to some of the more complex ones, the the sort of head to heads, that's when people get to sort of request maneuvers, if you like, when a brand new maneuver is suggested. So maybe it's based on something that's been done previously, but someone's had the idea that, you know, instead of going left to right, we go right to left or something like that. Then actually, um, it's always looked at if it's decided that it would work really well, then actually would go up and, and practice it. But as with anything, you, you know, it's all about building blocks. So you break it right down to the basics. You know, the leader would fly their bit and then maybe have one other aircraft fly in the other bit. And you sort of practice that. And then you sit down, obviously, and do a massive risk assessment. Really important to think about all of the what ifs. And then as you start building the other aircraft in it, as with every maneuver that the Red Arrows or any display team fly, Every person will have an escape maneuver. So if something were to go wrong, say with an engine or you lose power, there's a certain way of removing yourself from the formation in the safest possible way. And that obviously depends on whatever maneuver you're flying and also the position that you're in. So you know all these off by heart. And so that kind of thing would have been thought through as well. So then as you build it up and start putting the other aircraft into this new maneuver, you know, you're sort of doing it in a very controlled, um, safe way. Yeah. And then it's filmed lots and it's debriefed lots and lots and lots and decided whether it's worth keeping in and, and then hopefully it will be. Fantastic. And do you have a favorite or did you have a favorite maneuver? Oh, that's a hard question. I used to love, um, we often did maneuvers. So this is a bit of a kind of, I don't know how to describe it. We used to run in to the crowd, pointing at the crowd in one of the really big formations. So something like Blackbird would be a classic where the lead is right out the front and everybody else is much further back. 
But then what you'd have is um, the two on the wing, so one on each side when I was five and, and the opposite side would be number four. You'd do what's called a rollback. So, so the leader would run into the crowd and pull up. And as he pulls up, those two aircraft sort of quickly pull up and they do a really, really tight barrel roll. And then obviously they've taken a larger uh, air track now. So they're now further back and they sort of rejoin the formation in a new position. And I used to really enjoy that because it's very challenging to fly because the timing needs to be spot on in terms of positioning, getting to the right place. But also it's, um, you know, you're trying to match someone. Someone's doing the same thing on the opposite side. So it's very challenging to get right. But when you did get it right, it's very satisfying. I'm really interested in kind of what you think is next for the Red Arrows. We've been talking a lot throughout the podcast series about the sustainability of travel. And some could say, I think that a display team is a is a frivolous activity in a world of trying to reduce carbon. What's your thoughts on that, Christy? It's a really important point and something that has to be discussed. It's really important to think about what the Red Arrows do and what they stand for. Um, I think it's very easy to think that the Red Arrows are there just to go around some air shows um, and the pilots have a nice time. Um, they get to show off in front of the public and travel the world. And isn't it all amazing? There's actually a much deeper reason behind having the Red Arrows. So the Red Arrows, many years, will do a tour. And part of that tour, when I say tour, I mean sort of somewhere worldwide, whether that's Europe, or the Middle East, the Far East, or maybe the Americas. And there's a reason behind that. They're not just there as a sort of demonstration team of just something that's kind of fun and a bit inconsequential. First of all, it's demonstrating the excellence of the of the Air Force and actually of the UK military as a whole, not just the not just the Air Force. But also there's what we call sort of softer def- defense diplomacy. So it's all about having the red arrows that brings people together and those people can then have conversations that need to be had in cert- sometimes sort of difficult situations or, or difficult circumstances and difficult conversations to be had. The red arrows can help facilitate that. Um, and it's that side, I think, that people don't realize. That, and it's not sort of widely talked about, obviously. They play a really important role. And there's a lot of things that have happened in the past between industry and the government, but also industry and sort of worldwide for the UK that have been sort of supported in that respect by the by the Red Arrows. Um, so they do have a really important role to play. But then to bring on this idea of actually, you know, that's nine aircraft and they're all, you know, using Avgas. And we need to think of, I mean, at, right now, COP26 is happening. So never a better time to be talking about this. And I was really interested this week to read about the um, Air Force talking about they'd had a test pilot fly a um, electric aircraft that they were looking at for um, flying training. And I think that's exactly the right sort of attitude is people are uh, within the Air Force, and I'm not in the military now, so I should make that really clear. But people are recognizing and looking for other solutions to the problem. And I think that's brilliant. You know, there's always going to be, I don't know how you resolve the jet issue from a frontline point of view, because obviously there's a speed and a power thing there, which you can't get away from. But in terms of something like a display team and certainly flying training, those are the places we can start looking at and change what type of aircraft we're using. I mean, I fly a, um, I now fly in a display team and I fly a single engine propeller aircraft. So again, using Avgas, but um, you know, the, uh, the smaller aircraft and electric engines is a really exciting thing for aerobatic aircraft because you get to the point where actually the torque of the aircraft is going to be so much greater than anything the human body can cope with. <laughs> so actually, we're going to be the limiting factor. But it's, it would take aerobatics into a really, really new, exciting place. So I think there's a really exciting future ahead. And I'm really pleased to see the military are embracing that and looking at ways that they can start introducing it. You know, it's going to take some time. It's a big change. But I'm really pleased that that's already been being looked at. And I, I must admit, I've come from Rolls-Royce and looking at the Spirit of Innovation aircraft, our all-electric plane, it, is, it would make a great Red Arrows plane. It's a beautiful aircraft. 
<laughs> it is beautiful to look at. You're right. I don't know how good it would be to fly in formation. That's the key bit. <laughs> yes. But do you do think we might see like an all electric display team? I mean, who knows? I, I'm not obviously privy to some of those conversations, but, um, you know, the way that the electric aircraft are going, there's definitely potential for it in the future, without a doubt. I suppose a really important role of the, the Red Arrows display team is thinking about not just that display diplomacy and, and relationships piece you were just talking about, but actually how it can be a inspiration for people to pursue a career into aviation and real hotbed for innovation, I imagine, as well. I agree. And actually, this is something else I've, I've found really interesting with some of my outreach work. It's about how you sell a job to, or talk about a job or an industry to different groups of people. So at the minute, yes, it's very male dominated in the aviation industry. Absolutely. It's a bit like the motor industry. It's all about petrol and noise and power and all this kind of stuff. But actually, the aviation industry really is now, as you know, um, really getting into sustainability. And these are the kind of subjects which actually, and I hate to sound stereotypical here, but it's the kind of thing that probably does interest more young girls than previously when you just talk about petrol and speed and power. If you talk about aviation in those terms, then suddenly you are attracting a different group of people to the industry. I've got this great story of um, a sewage company, which is a bit by the by, but they, uh, they sent out a recruitment advert for an engineer and they actually normally have really quite good, you know, generally 50-50 male-female applicants for a lot of their roles. And this particular advert, they only had 20% females applying for it which really struck them because that's not how they normally, um, what they normally get in terms of their results. So they put the advert through some software, which sort of identifies whether it had been a bit too male or female orientated. And it, this software implied that there were, the language within it was a little bit male and they could rewrite it and it suggested how they rewrote it. And I should say, they're not changing here the spec of the job at all. It's purely about the descriptors about the job. So they changed certain words and they put in more about um, working for the team um, and they sort of changed what they were focusing on. And they put the advert out again and the next time they got 50-50 male-female applicants. So the job's not changed at all, purely about how it was thought about. And I think that's so important in trying to get young people into aviation from not just male-females, but from different backgrounds and to get that diversity of thinking because it's only with the diversity of thinking that we'll really make great strides in the future with some of this new tech be great if aviation was 50-50 male-female to start with. What do you see as the diversity challenges in the sector today? It's a tricky one to answer. I mean, um, some of it is perception, I think. For me, having joined the military, most people assume that I would have had more challenges as a female in the military than I would outside of the military. I have to say, when I was in the military, um, I was accepted for who I am and I just did my job. And that's what got me into the Red Arrows. And actually, it was only really when I started doing all the press discussions when I got into the Red Arrows, I realized what a big thing it was to everyone outside of the military. But to the people in the team, even though I was the first female pilot, I'd worked with a lot of those people before. So it didn't surprise them that I was there and didn't surprise them that I was successful in applying. So I was very lucky in that respect. But it's funny because I was treated like that. But of course, the perception from outside of the military is it wouldn't be like that. And that's what's stopping people applying to it, potentially. I think when you then look at some of the, certainly from a pilot point of view, civil aviation industry, as you get older and you're trying to manage your family and children, you know, I, I wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine it, but I'm relatively traditional in terms of how our family functions. I don't know if that's because it's just ingrained in me. I don't do it because, oh, a woman must do it you know, must be the primary caregiver. But um, in our family, it does seem to be like that. 
And it's really difficult to hold down a full-time job and manage a family. It's like having two full-time jobs. You know, the, the jobs that have really helped me cope are the jobs that offer me flexible working. You know, they're not making allowances for me. They're not making it easier for me to do my job in terms of I can operate to a lower standard, but they allow me to just work around my some of my constraints a bit better. Um, and that's allowed me to stay in a full-time job. So those are the kind of issues I think that we need to address. And And it's very easy to look at the bottom end and look at recruitment. But I think it's really important to look at the retention bit and how many females join the aviation industry and then leave it because they can't figure out how to work their life within it. And I think that's a real challenge. I don't know what the answers are, but it's definitely something that would make a real difference to people and me if that was looked at further and some other solutions were available. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's almost the whole system needs to be more inclusive for any individuals, roles or reasons. Is that something that you see government having a hand in evolving or do you think it's very much at a kind of employer level? I think it's probably a bit of both ultimately. Um, you know, employers are never going to really make the big changes if they don't have to or if there's no requirement to. Um, but I think when the spotlight gets put on them, for example, you know, gender pay differences, the government have sort of forced it, but the highlight of it means that the industry is reacting to it. So I think it has to be a combination. I should say I'm totally anti-quotas because often people start talking about quotas when they talk about diversity and I'm very anti them. And I think that the backlash from them can be huge. But there is a difference between a quota and actually, in effect, getting a certain group of people to the door in the first place for recruitment. So I wouldn't want to see people recruited just because they're male or female or, or whatever their background happens to be. But I would like to see a more focused effort at getting women or, or people from different aspects of society to the door for the recruitment. And then they interview and then it's whoever's best for the job. But that's what I really want to see a difference on personally. I can see that you yourself have probably played a really important role in getting people to the door and inspiring them to pursue careers in aviation, which is, is fantastic. Thank you. I suspect that along your career path and throughout your journey to where you are today as the UK ambassador for aviation, you've been through some experiences and, and you've probably learned some very important things along the way. Can you share with us and with the audience any of those? Yeah, sure. So there's definitely been challenges. I mean, obviously, as a pilot and in the military, um, one of the challenges often that people have to suffer with is, you know, coping with a, a death or a crash or a fatal crash. Um, and I had two of those when I was on the Red Arrows, which... Um, you know, it's funny, I'm quite, a res I've always thought myself as quite a resilient person. And you think you'll, you know, just cope with these things. And you think you are coping with them more importantly. And it's only after a period of time that you recognize that you're not the same person that you maybe were six months ago or a year ago, but it's happened gradually. And it's hard to identify that yourself. Maybe some members of your family or people around you who are close to you have seen it. But again, it's difficult to know how to help somebody. And I now, you know, I see it from the other other side. And it did culminate with a period for me where I had to stop flying. There was no way I could keep flying. You know, it wasn't safe for me to be continuing to fly. And I needed to sort of get some support. And I found it very difficult. And this is one of the lessons I've learned. First of all, it's very difficult for individuals to recognize that they need some support. But secondly, you know, when someone then actually does recognize that, it's very difficult to know what they need, because everybody's a bit different. Uh, I really struggled, you know, really probably for about a year before I actually managed to get the kind of support that I needed. For me, what worked really well was cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's something very fundamental about it. And if I just very briefly describe what it is, because it's helped me in normal day to day life. And it definitely helps me nowadays just cope with, you know, the ups and downs of life. 
So in effect, that you know, any event that happens, and I don't mean a big traumatic one necessarily, any event, anything that happened to you right, you know, today, um, you will have viewed in a certain way and you'll remember it in a certain way. But someone who is with you, alongside you, will remember it in a very different way, just depending on what's happened to them in the past and all sorts of other things. And interestingly, how you sort of think about that memory and that event changes how you feel and you will feel it. You know, something that you, you were really nervous of, you know, you'll physiologically recognize that and your heart will start racing when you think about it or you maybe get, you know, cold, clammy, slightly shaky, whatever. But then those feelings actually change your behavior. So you'll either avoid something because of that, you don't want that to happen again. So your behavior changes. And then, of course, that behavior changing will actually sort of change how you feel about that event again. And then you're all the way back around the top of the circle, going back into your feelings about the event. And then your um, changes how you feel, changes your behavior, and then all the way back around again. And what you have to do is try and put a stop in some point of that circle. Otherwise, it just continues. And the best place to put a stop is that changing how you feel about something or how you think about something. You need to look at a, a, a sort of event and sort of step back from it almost and think, okay, just, you know, describe again that event. And why is it that you're feeling that about that event? And if you can identify that thing, it can really help to sort of step back a bit and stop that circle sort of going round and round and round and sort of getting worse. And for me, that little technique um, has helped me loads just to deal with like really stressful things just at work on a day to day basis. If I'm getting stressed, you know, I'm feeling stressed. What? Okay, stop. Why am I feeling stressed? Because so-and-so said that in that meeting and I felt that was my responsibility. Okay, did they really mean that? You know, can we go back to that meeting? Let's think about the meeting again. Let's rethink about it and then change how I'm thinking about the event and then back into the feelings. And it's amazing how powerful that is as a technique just to stop yourself getting in these sort of tight corners, if you like, even the ones that you bounce back from just stops you getting there in the first place. Yeah, I can certainly resonate with you on that. And I think the mental resilience it also takes to step back and take that moment for yourself sometimes and break down the thought process that you're going through is is very powerful absolutely but it's certainly a learned skill as well it is it's a practice without doubt when certainly most people only ever get involved with cbt when they're already trying to deal with something really significant and so it's very difficult to make it work straight away but the more you practice it on the little things the more it sort of works for you so it is a practice thing and Kirsty, one of the aims of the Expo itself is is really focused on what is the the future of travel. What does travel mean to us? What does travel? What does transport aviation in particular mean to you personally? So for me, travel and um, aviation in particular is two things. Um, one is the fun and the enjoyment of doing the aerobatic flying that I do, um, and I think the future of that is exciting. I talked a bit earlier in the podcast about you know the potential for electric engines and how that would change aerobatics. You know, and I'm a I'm a professional formation aerobatics champion, but I'm you know I'm not a worldwide champion or national champion in terms of single aerobatics. And when I talk to some of the other pilots about the possibilities with an electric aircraft, then I'm really excited. So for me, the future of that sort of fun side of flying, if you like, is just like wow, where can we take this? And then of course, when you start looking into sort of drones and aerobatics, and it, it's really exciting. And then the other side of it, obviously, is along with many people in the in the world is that aviation is travel it's how I get to see the world it's how I learn about other people other cultures and the idea that well we first of all need to do it in a more sustainable way but I'm really starting to see sort of real movement on that it's not this sort of high in the sky ideas now that you see every now and again in an innovation magazine and you think oh god that never worked it's really exciting at the minute I think there's genuine steps being taken that are going to make a difference. And they're, they're that ground layer. You know, the first bit of any new tech is always a bit groundbreaking. And then after that, 
you know, something more sort of sensible comes out of it. And that's what I'm finding really exciting about the sort of travel side of stuff at the minute. And where uh, whether it's electric flight, more sustainable flight, I, I'm really excited about that. So the next 20, 25 years in aviation, I just can't imagine where it's going to end up. And that's quite an exciting time. So I think being part of aviation at the minute is brilliant. Would you fly an electric plane? Oh, totally. I'd love to. Yeah, absolutely. Good to know. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time to appear on this podcast. It's been an honour to speak to you and have the chance to hear about your experience as the first female Red Arrows pilot. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.